about y'all? I was about ready to run to heaven there for a minute after that song. Uh, God is so good. He's so good. If you got your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 22 and uh, picking up uh, where we left off a couple weeks ago and heading into chapter 23. And so as you're turning there, um, thinking we can probably all relate to those moments where we've had somewhere really important to go or or something really important to do, a very important purpose, and so we jump in our car and off we go. And, and at some point, whether we realize it when we get there or maybe it's on the way, that we realize that something very important to accomplish what we're trying to do is not with us, right? You've had those moments where you forget things. Um, I read a story yesterday, and, and this guy made the news with this story, so I, I feel for him. I actually feel for the lady a little bit more, but the story went like this. Uh, this couple was going, off, going out on a first date, and so they had not met before, and they were talking on the phone to see who was, uh, you know, what time he would pick her up, but he lost his keys. He couldn't find them, so she picked him up, and so she came and picked him up, and on their first date... They uh, somehow ended up in the drive-through line of Taco Bell <laughs> for their for their first date. Um, maybe y'all can relate. I don't know, but the first date Taco Bell. So here we go, and uh, they get to the order, and the guy speaks over his date and says, uh, "I want 100 hard shell tacos." And uh, and so as they drove around, it took about 15 minutes for them to make these tacos, and then when it came to pay. You can imagine what happens. I'm sorry, I forgot my wallet. So his date paid about $150 for 100 hard shell tacos. The story goes on that they ate in complete silence and the date ended abruptly right after that. So, so, so again, like have your wallet on you if you're, you know, going out on your first date with somebody. But, but more importantly than that is like we can relate, maybe not in that situation exactly, but in situations where we have gone and we have pursued this purpose and we're like, oh no, I forgot this. And depending on what you're doing or how important it is or how far you have to go will determine if it's important enough to stop and turn around. And, and so today we are seeing where Paul is making a very important trip. Uh, this has been a trip that God has laid on his heart. And the Bible tells us that he yielded his spirit to the Holy Spirit and that God was calling him to go to Jerusalem. And so he's made it to Jerusalem. This is after his third missionary journey. He's here. He's being obedient to the Lord. And, and as he gets there, uh, he is understood up to this point. And I believe for anyone who desires to follow Jesus and to obey him is that there are some essentials that are necessary that we mustn't forget as we strive to live a life for his glory and for his mission. For Paul, he understood he could not do this in his own strength. He could not walk in obedience to the Lord in his own wisdom and strength. And so he desperately needed the grace of God in his life. He desperately needed the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit of God indwelling him as a believer to give him the grace and the strength to honor him with what God had shown him specifically to do. And not only that, but it would take courage. It would take courage. And, and I, would, I would say in today's world that those same essentials are, necess are necessities for us 
that if we want to honor the Lord with our life, we want to obey Him, we want to bring glory to Him, then it is going to be essential that we not go about it in our strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. That we cannot go about this in our, in our, on our own strength, but it must be the grace of God. And that as we go, as we strive to live for God's glory and God's mission, we will no doubt, it will require courage. We will need courage. And so today's main point of the text is that we take courage and that His, God's providence and His mission move us forward. And we're going to see this in the text because as soon as Paul made it to Jerusalem, it did not take long for things to get off the rails big time. That as soon as he made it to the temple in Jerusalem, there were some Jews from Ephesus that had made the trip to celebrate Pentecost and they saw Paul and as the moment they saw him, they yelled, they yelled get him. And they, they went to put their hands on Paul and they gave instruction to shut the temple gate because they were about to murder him and they didn't want his blood to spill into other areas of the temple. And so they, they shout and they lay their hands and they are going to take his life on the temple courts right there. And then there's this Roman tribune, the Roman uh, kind of official named Claudius Lysias, the Bible tells us, and he is standing guard. And the reason he's standing guard as a Roman official is he's making sure things don't get out of control. But things are getting out of control. And so he, along with his soldiers, sweep in and they grab a hold of Paul, saving his life. And as he's being taken into Antonia's fortress, which is right there on the Temple Mount, Paul requests the Roman tribune, can he please tell this religious mob uh, something? And so the, the Roman tribune agrees. And the Bible teaches us that, that in Hebrew language, that Paul shared his testimony to that religious mob that had just had their hands on him trying to kill them. Now, Paul has a testimony. If you're in this room and you've been rescued by God's grace, and there's been a time and a place where you have acknowledged your need for a Savior, have had a change of mind about your sin, repented of your sin, and trusted Jesus and the finished work of Jesus on the cross for your salvation, you have a testimony. And so for Paul, what he does is he stands there and he tells them about his life before Christ. And he can relate with them because he was one of them. And not only does he share his life before Christ, but he shares about his conversion experience when he, when he surrendered his life to King Jesus. And then he wraps up by telling about his life after Christ, which is a great uh, kind of blueprint for us sharing our testimony with other people what our life was like before Christ, how we were saved, and wow, our life is different now because of Him. And so as they're there and He's sharing, I want to start in verse 21. I said verse 22. I want to back up one verse. And, and Paul is on the tail end of his testimony. And he's about to say something that are going to make the religious mob lose their minds. And so he is, he is, he is bringing his testimony to a close and he's specifically sharing with them what happened after he was saved there in Damascus, he had made his way back to Jerusalem in the temple. And what he's telling them is what happened to him 20 years before. And the Bible says this in verse 21. The Bible says, And the Lord said to me, Go, and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22 says, And up to this word, they listened to him and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. 
Like they just, he just said a word. That God has sent me to the Gentiles and they lost it. They lost it. Now, a principle that's happening in this text is a same principle that is at play in our worlds today. And that is this, is that as you follow Jesus, opposition is certain. It's going to happen. It's not a what if, it's a when it's going to happen. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.12, he said, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So opposition is certain. If you look at the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, you see a theme through the Bible. And that theme is the wicked oppose the righteous. You can see it as early on as Cain taking Abel's life. You can see it as Esau tried to do harm to Jacob. You can see it as the nation of Israel rose up against Moses. You can see it as King Saul opposed and tried to persecute King David. You can see it from the prophets of Elijah all the way through Jeremiah. The wicked oppose the righteous. The same was true then, the same is true now. And so opposition is certain, but here's another truth. And the brokenness of the broken world we're in can get very ugly. It can get very ugly. If we took just a moment and we opened up a mic and said, hey, share with me what broken things you've seen in our world, that it would, it would be, many of those would be ugly situations. And the same is true here. A ugly situation is breaking out and, it, and, and they lost their minds at the word Gentile. Why? Why? Because what Paul is saying and what they are perceiving is that Gentiles can be saved just like everybody else. See, there are the Jews and then there's the Gentiles. There's everybody else. And what Paul is saying is the gospel is for all people that God had sent him to take the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. And what he's saying is, is that Jew and Gentile are on equal footing. They're equal to us and they're losing it because they're like, well, we're people of the law. We're God's special people. I mean, if you're going to talk about the Jewish Messiah, at least talk about it through Judaism because, because it's about us, but it's not about them. It's about God and his glory and his mission. And it's about getting this gospel to the ends of the earth. There were even staunch Jews that believed the only reason Gentiles were created was to make hell hotter. It was, it, there was a, there was a, there was a, 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 a deep separation. There's Jews and there's everybody else. And so in verse 23, the Bible says, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him, Paul, to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? And so the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. Verse 28, the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum, Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. And so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately and the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So this Roman tribune is, is all about keeping order. 
And as he's all about keeping order, he has Paul. Paul had just shared his testimony to a religious mob, but he was speaking in Hebrew. This Roman tribune is still trying to figure out, like, what's he saying? Like, what's, why are these people so mad at him? And so they take him and they prepare him to be flogged. They prepare him to be, to be whipped. The, the Bible says that they had stretched out his hands. And so in an effort to extract a confession from Paul, this Roman tribune and his men, they literally tie his hands up. And so much of Paul's ministry mirrors the ministry of Jesus. That it was in the same place that Christ would be flogged and that he endured. And that this is why Simon had to help carry the cross of Christ up that hill. The purpose of this torture was to get an answer. And to do that, they, they took a flagellum. It was, a, it was a, a, a whip that had a short wooden handle, had leather throngs. And on those leather throngs were, were, were glass, bone, uh, and metal. And the idea would be is that as they would whip them with this, uh, this torture device is that this would push them to give an answer. And as soon as he found out that Paul was a freeborn Roman citizen, he was like, uh-oh, because you don't, you don't carry out torture or judgment on a Roman who is not being condemned. And so now you see this Roman tribune kind of jumping on the other side, like kind of like, uh-oh, like un untie him, let, let's go. And so in verse 30, the Bible says, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and he set him before him. So the tribune still trying to figure out like, what is the deal with this Paul guy? Why is everybody trying to kill this man? What's going on? And so he now has this idea. Well, I'm going to call an unofficial meeting with the Sanhedrin. This is like the Jewish Supreme Court. And he brings them in in an unofficial uh, Sanhedrin meeting. And they place Paul down right there in the middle of them. There are 71 people that are part of this Jewish Supreme Court. 70 of them are members and a plus one is the high priest. And here they are now and they have now gathered 71 people in the Roman tribune and Paul sitting in the middle of them and they are about to have an interrogation. But listen to verse one of chapter 23, what Paul does. The Bible says, and looking intently at the council. I think it's worth it just to take a breath right here. And I want you to try to be a fly on the wall. And I want you to imagine what Paul has endured and experienced in these hours leading up to this moment. And that it could be that as Paul is looking intently at this group of 71 men, is that he looks at them with swollen eyes, a battered body and bloodstains on himself. And as he's looking intently at him, Paul says this, Paul said, brothers, you don't call the Jewish Sanhedrin brothers. If you're on trial and you're before the Jewish Sanhedrin, you refer to them as elders and fathers. But Paul calls them brothers. Why in the world would he call them brothers? Because he was their peer. He knew many of these guys. He was likely on the same council 20 years ago. As he looks around these guys, he was probably went to 
rabbi school under Gamaliel and, and was in class with him. Like they saw the change in his life. They knew each other. They were peers. And like, Paul, what in the world happened to you? And what happened to him was Jesus. Jesus changed his life. Jesus changes people's lives. And he looks at them and he says, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And what he's saying, he's not saying I'm perfect, but what he is saying is he is saying, I am right with God. That I am right with God up to this point in verse two. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. The high priest is Ananias. This is a different Ananias. We've heard a couple of Ananiases in the book of Acts. This is a different one. This is the high priest. He came into rule around AD 46. And so he is now the high priest and he was a wicked, corrupt, twisted, messed up individual. He would steal the tithes from other priests and he would put them in his own pocket. If you couldn't get on board with what his plan was, he would have you dealt with. But if you were to fast forward in history to AD 66 to 70, there was an event called the Jewish revolt and his own people, the Jews killed him because they despised him so much. And so this guy is wicked and he's twisted. And in verse 30, excuse me, verse three, Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. That is strong language. God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you getting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, Paul has to be one of the godliest men that has ever lived. We talked a little bit about this uh, in our prayer meeting on Wednesday night. He has to be at least one of the godliest men. There's no question he was the greatest missionary of all time. So Paul was a godly man, the greatest missionary, but Paul, Paul was godly, but he wasn't God. And there were times where Paul got in his flesh a little bit too. And so what you see is Paul is acting out of this flesh in righteous anger, but it did not honor the Lord. It was not of God because God instructed him that you are not to strike the ruler or speak evil of a ruler of your people. And I want you to think about this is that Paul's in a desperate hour and he doesn't rationalize his sin and he doesn't try to deflect his sin. He says, I didn't know it was I didn't know it was the high priest. I didn't know brothers. I didn't know. And, and, and fair enough. I mean, it, it could have been a sarcastic statement, but in Galatians, he, he talks about having a physical ailment towards the end of that letter. He talks about, see what large letters, letters I write to you. It very well could be that Paul could not see well, perhaps from being stoned in Lystra, his eyes were swollen. He had eye damage. We don't know. This is an unofficial meeting. The high priest isn't in his traditional garb. And so you got, you got like, like it's been 20 years since he's seen these guys. And so he's, he's like, what, what, what's going on? What's going on? And Paul knew God's word and he knew God's desire for him to live a holy life. And he knew, Paul knew he crossed the line. He crossed the line. And so he publicly confesses. I think this is incredible 
that in a desperate hour, Paul is owning his sins. And there were ever a time that you could rationalize anger at this man. It was now, but yet he is owning it. And Ananias was wicked, twisted, and sick, but Paul knew he was to respect the office of this leader. And so what we see is opposition is certain, brokenness is ugly. We just read about it, but maturity is revealed in confession. You see a maturity about Paul's walk. um, And we got to ask the question, what about us? Like nobody likes to confess. I mean, who, who likes that? It means you're wrong. It means you messed up. It means you stepped out of line. But Paul's modeling for us maturity. There's maturity in confession. And so how often do we find ourselves rationalizing our temper? We rationalize our attitude. We rationalize our actions. We rationalize our reactions. We rationalize the words that come out of our mouths. But we know it doesn't reflect the life of one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And so perhaps today is a day that the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction into our lives that we have allowed something into our lives or we have done something that we know doesn't honor the Lord. And where confession may seem scary, it's actually one of the greatest gifts that we have. And it clears the air and it brings freedom But we see not only that there's maturity in confession, but we see Paul living life sensitive to God's wisdom and discernment. Quick poll, does anybody need God's wisdom and discernment? Or am I the only one in the house? All of us, all of us. We need it. Listen to this word, verse 6 says, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, and I want you to remember that word perceived. When Paul perceived that One part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. And it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. And for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And then a great clamor arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And my, have the tables turned right here. Verse 10 says, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring them into the barracks. Paul perceived. God gave Paul a discernment and a wisdom in that moment, in that desperate hour, and it, it, it affected the situation in a big way. So on this Sanhedrin, you had three different kind of sectors of the, the council there, but two were Pharisees and Sadducees. A Pharisee, that word means separated one. They clung to the law. They clung to the prophets. Um, They believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels. They believed in spirits. The Pharisees were all about the Torah and the prophets. The Sadducees were considered liberals. That that they, they didn't believe in any resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. And they didn't believe in spirits. And they only clung to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. But none of the writings of the prophets. And so as Paul perceived and he speaks into 
this resurrection of the dead that is through Christ. Paul is no fool. And he knows this is life or death. He knows he's in an intense moment. His life is on the line and he perceives. In other words, God gives him the gift of discernment and wisdom to divert the attention from killing him. Now, here's the deal. It's, it, we cannot necessarily com, kind of like say like, and just like Paul, we'll do this. Like, I mean, Paul, I don't know that we'll find ourselves in front of a Jewish Supreme Court and, and be striked in the face by a high priest. But, but I believe there is a principle here that is at play in our world today. And I believe it will help us because my thought is we do find ourselves in desperate places. Might not look like this, but it looks different. We find ourselves in desperate places, circumstances, intense moments. When there's a lot on the line, we have desperate moments in our marriages. We have desperate moments in parenting. We have desperate moments in our work. We have desperate moments where we find ourselves making big time decisions that we, have, we know have big time ramifications on life. And sometimes there may be a temptation to respond in our flesh, but rather... We need wisdom from above. We need God's wisdom. And that's exactly what God says he will give us. In James chapter one, verses five through six, he says, if any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. God help us. Broken place, opposition certain, it's a mess. It can be really, really messy, but yet we need God's grace and wisdom and discernment and he will grant it to us as believers. And so we can honor him in this life and we can make much of him. And so what do they do? They take him and they're like, he's gonna get torn limb from limb. And so they take him back to the barracks again. Now Paul's back in the barracks for what is like the third time. And I want you to think about all he's been through. And, and I can't help, I don't know this, I wasn't there, but my thought is the brother is discouraged. The brother is discouraged. I can't help but think that if he was in that prison cell and he's discouraged and his mind is racing on all those things that statements that people made along the way and maybe she, he should have listened to them and not God. Um, and, and like he's kind of like doing the shoulda, woulda, coulda thing in his head. And, and so, because as he's in there, what did the, the, the church told him? In Joppa, they said, don't go, Paul. The church told him in Caesarea, don't go, Paul. Agabus was a prophet from Jerusalem who came to Caesarea, took Paul's belt. He wrapped it around his feet and he wrapped it around his hands. And he said, Paul, if you go, this is what's going to happen to you. Even then, Luke, who was on Paul's mission team, his own team was like, Paul, don't do it. Don't do it. But he had to be obedient to the Lord. And so he followed through and here he is. And I am only imagining how desperate a situation that he might be in. Discouraged. John Gordon says, we don't give up oftentimes because it's hard. We give up because we get discouraged along the way. And so there is a saying, and I don't know who said it. Maybe you've heard it. It might even be a song, but I believe there is a great truth in it. So when you can't trace God's hand, you can trust his heart. Because there are going to be things that don't make sense. And there's going to be things that happen the way we don't think they should happen. But we must trust that God's ways are greater. 
And at the end of the day, Paul had a confidence in the providence of God. He had a confidence in the providence. Verse 11, and uh, we're wrapping up on this verse. The Bible says this, the following night. So after all that, the next night, the following night, the Lord stood by him. And he said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That word take courage means cheer up. Cheer up. You've been a faithful witness, Paul. You, you have testified to me faithfully in this place. And then Paul hears the words that he was longing for. Paul, you are going to Rome, brother. And he wanted to go to Rome so bad. As soon as he was wrapped up in Jerusalem, he was headed to Rome. But I can only imagine he's there and he's in the barracks and he's like, I don't think Rome's going to happen, but, but it's not going to happen his way, but it's going to happen God's way. God is giving Paul the desire of his heart. And I'm thinking if Paul was writing the story, it'd look way different and it would not involve chains of any sort. But here's what's interesting. If we were to go backwards in Acts 12 from where we are right here, you would find a apostle by the name of Peter who's in the same barrack that Paul is in right now. And if y'all remember the story, the church interceded and prayed. And do y'all remember what happened? An angel shows up and that angel smacked Peter. <laughs> he woke him up, woke him up. And he said, let's go. And he walked out and they went over to Mary's house and they're having a prayer meeting. And they're like, what are you doing here, Peter? They're like, God delivered me. Like they were shocked that God answered their prayer. But God, God chose in that, in that moment to deliver him. But sometimes God doesn't deliver us from what we think we need or want to be delivered. Sometimes he gives us the grace to endure. And so for Peter, it was like, I'm out. But for Paul, God's plan was, you're here but I'm going to use you in a way that you could never believe. Paul would say in Philippians, when he was in a Roman prison, he's going to get to Rome. He's going to write letters to churches while he's in prison. Here's what he says in the prison epistle of Philippians. He said, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. That over in Ephesians, Though he has Roman chains on his arm, you know what he says? He says, I am a prisoner of Christ. Rome doesn't imprison him. He is a prisoner of King Jesus and his will be done, not mine. And so the encouragement is he knows. The encouragement is he sees. The encouragement is that he is present. He is not far. And the encouragement is his purposes will prevail. His purposes will prevail. If we go back to Acts chapter one and we open the Bible, we, we were there back in February. We opened in Acts chapter one in verse eight. Jesus says this. He says, and my Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what has happened all through the book of Acts, God has been faithful that his purposes are prevailing. And the gospel, though it might not have been the way they had planned or desired, is the gospel moved from Jerusalem and it moved into Judea and it moved to Samaria. And what we are about to see is that the gospel is about to go to the end of the known world at that time, to Rome. 
and nobody could have ever scripted it, but his plans will prevail. And so be encouraged, church. Be encouraged that in the midst of ugly stuff and in the midst of great brokenness, and yes, there will be certain opposition, but we can have confidence in God's providence and that we can cheer up because we can rest in his providence and his mission will keep moving us on, will keep moving us forward. Jesus said on the night he was betrayed, he said this in John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. And in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart or take courage. I have overcome the world. And so it's in him that we have our rest. It's in him that we have our peace. Yes, this is a broken place, but nothing can stop the purposes of God. Nothing can stop him. And so perhaps today as a believer, the Holy Spirit is stirring in your heart and the stirring is that there is a time of confession that is needed. That there's a time of confession that's needed. Um, confession is a gift from God. We allow things, sometimes willingly, sometimes um, in a struggle, but we, 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 the Spirit is, is strong and willing, but sometimes our flesh is weak and sometimes we let things into our lives that we know, like Paul, doesn't honor the Lord. And so may we be faithful to confess. And what confession is, it is unlocking freedom. And I don't know who said it, but I've heard it said and I love it. Any sin we uncover, God covers. And every sin we cover, God uncovers. He's faithful. He is faithful to leading God. So perhaps a time of confession that those things have come into our lives and we need to repent. We need to have a change of mind about those things. That's what repentance is. Maybe we've gotten used to those things. We don't need to get used to those things. We need to have a change of mind about those things. Listen, this, this whole, like the Bible is about life transformation, not behavior modification. This isn't about doing better. And it's not about change. It's about, it's about allowing God's spirit to change our hearts and our minds about those things that are in our life that don't honor him. And so perhaps it's time for confession. Perhaps you're in a desperate place. You need wisdom. You need discernment. You don't know what to do. You are in uncharted territory. And I've been there. I get it. And in those moments, I'm like, God, I need your discernment. God, I need your grace. God, I need your wisdom. Who's somebody that's further along the way that can speak into our lives? We need that. And so maybe today it's like seeking that wisdom and discernment that we need in our lives or perhaps it is resting and knowing that God is near and that his purposes will prevail and nothing can stop him. However the Lord would take this message and apply to your heart, I, I pray that we can take from this a, a reason to take cheer. Because <laughs> there's a lot of joy stealers out there. But yet we can take heart. His providence and his mission will keep moving us forward. But I want you to think about one more thing, and that is this. Jesus said, my Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses. We fast forward to Acts chapter 23, and the Lord tells Paul, you've been a faithful witness. You've testified. That's what a witness does. They testify. What are they testifying about? 
the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ alone and nothing else and only in His finished work on the cross, His death, His burial, His resurrection. There is salvation in Christ and Christ alone. This is what they are witnessing about. And this is what God's blessing is on, this gospel going to the ends of the earth. And somehow or another, it made it to Olive Branch, Mississippi. (laughs) And the goal isn't that it stops here, but the goal is we just keep taking that gospel message forward. And so it could be today that the question we're asked, you have a personal relationship with Jesus, you could not answer confidently yes. And for you, may you hear the love of God pursuing you, pursuing a relationship with you, and that today is the day of salvation. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible testimony of your faithfulness. Thank you that in a very ugly, broken situation, that God, that our brother Paul, by your grace, by your strength, with courage, was able to stand. He owned his mess ups. He owned it. But God, you gave him incredible discernment and wisdom on how to put one foot in front of the next. And that God, in his most discouraging or at least one of his most discouraging moments, you were there. You saw, you were not distant, you were near. Your presence with him, your Holy Spirit living in him, And because of that, we can take courage. So Father, may you find us sensitive to how your spirit desires to transform us according to your word. Change our minds, Holy Spirit, about things that need to be changed. And we don't do it in our own. We don't do it in our own strength. We do it by your grace and in your strength. And God, I do pray for anybody here who needs to begin a relationship with you that they would acknowledge their brokenness, change their mind about their sin, repent and trust in you as Lord of their lives in your completed work, your death, your, your perfect life, your substitutionary death and your glorious resurrection on the third day, proving that you alone have the power to save. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me and we're going to have a time of response. And so we'll have pastors here. If we can pray for you, we would love to pray over you. You want to come and pray at the altar? Please come pray at the altar. If you're here and you're like, you know what? Enough's enough. I put this thing off long enough today. I need to begin a relationship with Jesus. I encourage you to come today and to make that most important decision.